0: Our scripture read this morning is from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it Our Father in heaven, we call on you now asking that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. We pray that you would let us hear from you through your word. I ask that as I speak that that I would be like the person Angela just read about, that, that I would be speaking your words. And I pray that each of us would listen as we hear from you. I ask that you would increase our faith, that you would help us to not only listen, but you would help us to believe and to obey and to put these things into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this time of our service and turn to the word of God, I want to ask you to imagine something for just a moment and think of someone that you trust. Think of someone that you would go to for advice, someone that you would be willing to listen to, even if they said something that you did not want to hear. For me, one of these people is actually my father-in-law. I kind of half-jokingly call him Jethro, uh, half-jokingly because Jethro is Moses' father-in-law in in the Old Testament, and, and Jethro takes Moses aside at one point and says, what you are doing is not good. And he, as a father-in-law, gives him some wisdom, and Moses puts it into practice. And in a lot of ways, I benefit from that type of my relationship with my father-in-law. So I call him Jethro. Not to his face. I have multiple times gone to him, asking for his advice, not knowing what he will say, but trusting that what he will say is what I need to hear, whether I like it or not. And and the first time that I did this was actually at the encouragement of the pastor who married Lauren and me. Part of our premarital counseling was he said, you need to go sit down with your father-in-law, ask in an open-ended way for his advice, and shut up. So I did. And he gave me a number of things, and some of them I have remembered, and some of them I don't. But one of the things that I do remember is he talked to me a little bit about being a dad. And one of the things that he said to me is he encouraged me that as you have kids, and as your kids come to you and ask you to do different things and for different things, let your default answer be yes as much as possible. Don't become a dismissive father who says no because it's easier. Don't be the dad that always says no. As much as you can, if it's possible at all, say yes. So he gave me that that nugget of wisdom, and I do think of it, especially those times when my kids ask me something, and Maybe I'm tired, maybe I'm lazy. For whatever reason, I want to say no, but that sticks in my head, and I think, if I'm going to be a good dad, I should say yes to this. We should make this happen. And so that advice has helped me, in times, do what's right when my heart kind of wants to do something that's wrong, even if it seems like a small thing, like it's not going to matter that much. The ability to hear wisdom has changed how I'm a dad. And there was one other occasion that I'll mention to you, and that was actually when it was a possibility that I might become a pastor. And our church was asking if I would consider being the pastor here. I had not, you know, many of you know, I had not been a pastor somewhere else And so I went to my father-in-law, and and I know that as much as he loves me as a person, and, and he really has treated me like a son, as much as he loves me, I know he really loves Lauren, and he really loves his grandkids. And so as I'm asking, should I come to this church and serve as a pastor? Should I enter ministry? He's had a close-up view of what ministry is like, and it's not always easy, and it's not always pretty. And knowing how much he loves his little girl and how much he loves his grandkids, when I went to him with a question, I trusted that he would look at me and my character, that he would look at my relationship with God as best as he could, and that he would think about what is Right. For me, for Lauren, for our family, for the church. And I trusted that there was a real possibility he would look at me and say, no, you are not fit or qualified, don't do it. And I am here in part because he said, I think this is something that you should pursue. And I went to him not knowing which way he would go, and I trusted his answer. And what I'd like to ask you to do right now is to think for a moment about what we're doing here as a church, as I'm preaching a sermon, as you're listening to a sermon. The passage of scripture that Angela just read says, let one who speaks, speak as if speaking the oracles of God, meaning you are speaking the words of God. And he says that to the entire church, not just to the one speaking, meaning When you are listening to someone speak in church, not that you don't question it. You are to question the things that you hear from the pulpit. But, when someone speaks faithfully and accurately, saying what the Word of God says, you treat it as if God has said it, because this is the Word of God. Which means... I am about to examine a passage of scripture where Jesus is speaking, and what I'd like to ask each of you to do today is to treat Jesus like that person who is going to speak truth into your life. You may not know exactly what Jesus is about to say in our passage this morning. You may not like what Jesus is about to say in our passage this morning. But Jesus, as the image of God, as God's Son, knows all truth. He's received it from the Father. And he is going to speak to you and to me accurately from a place of love, knowing what is best for you and what is best for his church. And so you ought to listen to what he says. So listen, because even more than a wise person, Jesus is speaking to you as the Son of God, sent by the Father so we would know what God is like, so we would know what is right and what is wrong. We've been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke for exactly that reason, to know him better. Luke is telling us in an orderly and careful way All that Jesus did and taught. Luke is a careful historian. He is an amazing writer. And his goal is for you and for me to have certainty about Jesus Christ. He says that in the introduction to his book in chapter 1. And he wants us as a church to preach the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. He says that's his goal in the very last chapter at the very end of the book. And if we're going to preach about forgiveness through Jesus, and if we're going to trust what Jesus did and taught, we have to know what he did and taught. And the only way we're going to do that is if we look carefully at the book of Luke and the other Gospels, and as Jesus did, look at the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation so that we can know him and know him better. And so far in Luke, what we have seen, Jesus has a passionate dedication to the word of God. He loves to teach, he loves to preach, and it is the primary thing that he did during his ministry on earth. You see it again and again and again, Words preaching and teaching occur in every chapter of Luke. And as he preaches and teaches, he welcomes all all kinds of people from every walk of life and from every type of bad reputation or good reputation. He loves to forgive sinners. In fact, he says the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he says that as people are getting angry and frustrated with him because he's willing to eat with people who have bad reputations. His willingness to love and forgive sinners creates conflict with judgmental people who were known as the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And that conflict led to the place where he told some of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. Think about the prodigal son for a moment. We looked at it just a couple of weeks ago. As he's criticized publicly for loving sinners and extending God's grace to them, he says, no, you know what the father is like? The father, God, is like a father who welcomes his repentant son into the family with joy and welcomes him as a son and forgives him. And not only does he love that son, he loves the older brother who in many ways is just like the younger son because he doesn't love the father. He doesn't know the father's heart. He just wants the father's stuff. And when he sees his father being gracious to a repentant sinner, he's angry. One of the most amazing things about the story is that the father goes out to this angry religious type person And says, won't you come into the feast? He extends the same invitation to the older brother. And shows that God is a God who loves us. No matter if we're a bunch of religious hypocrites who struggle with pride. Or if we're people who wear our sins out in public. God is a God who loves repentant sinners. And so Jesus tells that story to people who are angry. That he, as a prophet, as a teacher... He's welcoming sinners. He's eating with tax collectors. He's willing to forgive people with terrible reputations. And then, in chapter 16, which we saw last week, he confronts the Pharisees very directly. And he says, you think that you're keeping the law, but you're not. You're breaking the law. And if you break the law and you never repent, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus talks more about hell than any other person in the entire Bible. And he does it because he loves Pharisees who are hard-hearted, who are not listening. And so he exposes that they also break the law, and that law-breaking leads to eternal destruction. You hear Jesus say incredibly hard and incredibly painful things... Like, you will burn in hell if you do not repent. And the danger is there. And you can imagine what the disciples would have been thinking as they listened to this confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. They're sitting on the sidelines. I imagine they're kind of nervous. You can feel the tension in the air. These people are not happy. Jesus is telling them, you are on the wrong side of God's wrath. And then Jesus turns, and in our text today, in Luke chapter 17, and I would encourage you to turn there, he turns and he addresses the disciples that have been listening the whole time. And in one sense, you might think that they're they're fine, like they're at peace. They're like, oh, thank God he's not talking to us. And then he does turn and talk to them. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to read through the first four verses together. It says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus, after speaking so firmly to the Pharisees, turns and warns his disciples that they have to watch themselves. You can imagine that, that he would think the disciples are kind of, you know, maybe eating popcorn on the sidelines, like, watching. whoa, like he is taking these people out. And yet then he says, you are also in danger. Do not think that you're fine, because maybe you're not. And he gives them both a warning and a command. And what we're going to see is, number one, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to destroy faith in someone else. Not only that, even if you are a follower of Christ and you'd say, I follow Jesus, I believe in Jesus, you never stop needing faith. So do not think that God owes you anything Instead, recognize that you need to continue living a life of humble faith. And if I could sum this message up in just one sentence, it's this. You need a humble faith to be saved. You need a humble faith to be saved. And everything we're going to see this morning points to that truth. So let's look at this warning and command to begin with. Jesus says so clearly, temptations to sin are sure to come. And then he gives this warning, woe to those through whom these temptations come. And and he says that that this danger, if you cause a little one to sin, it would be better for for you to be drowned. With no hope of rescue, no hope of swimming to shore, it would be better for you to be drowned than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And if we're going to understand what he means, we need to think about a couple of things. We need to think about who are these little ones? What is he talking about? Number two, what is he talking about temptation? What is temptation? How is it that I might cause someone else to stumble? Temptation is a reality for everyone. Jesus allows that and recognizes that. But he warns you and he warns me, he warns his followers, do not be the type of person that leads someone else astray. So first, who are the little ones? Uh, the temptation, I think, is to believe that Jesus is only talking about people that cause children, literal children, to sin. You know, when you read about a horrible case of abuse in the news, maybe you think of this verse, if you know it, if you've heard of it before, you think about what Jesus says, those who harm children. It be better if they just were drowned than to have done what they do. And, and in one sense, I agree. I, I don't think that that's an entirely wrong interpretation. To take a child's innocence is a horrible, horrible thing. And Jesus is clear that, that God will judge people who do this. But here's the thing. That is not the point of this verse. It's not the point of this verse. You know why? Because Jesus is not talking to a bunch of pedophiles in prison. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who say, I follow Jesus. He's talking to you, and he's talking to me. So he's saying, be aware that you could commit this type of sin. And if that's true, and he's warning you, he's not just saying, be careful what you do around little kids. In fact, if you look at Mark's gospel... Mark describes the little ones as those who believe in Jesus. You can see it in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, that the phrase is a little bit longer there. Mark records a fuller statement of what Jesus said, and it seems that the little ones Jesus is talking about, they're they're the new followers of Christ. They're people who say, I believe in Jesus. They're people that are coming, and they are listening to his teaching, they are agreeing with it. They are repenting, they are finding forgiveness, and they are following Christ. And so, the way that you would cause them to stumble into sin is if you hinder their following Christ. Well, well, how do you do that? Well, you could do it in a lot of different ways. The the reality is, every sin separates you from Christ in one way or another. Think about pride for just a moment. Think about the religious leaders that, that Jesus does condemn. You know, it would have been tempting for the the disciples to think Jesus is still talking about the Pharisees, because in some places Jesus does describe them this way. He says, you are not only going to be excluded from the kingdom, but you are preventing other people from entering. And he's clear that the way they handle the law and the rules does prevent people from life. So this could apply to them. They do tempt people away from Christ. The problem is Jesus is still talking to the disciples. So think about some of the sins that maybe we wrestle with. Think about about pride for just a moment. Pride makes you think that you do not need Jesus. It's the kind of sin that says, you know, I'm basically a good person, and whatever little flaws I have, whatever little faults I have, God won't mind. It's all right. There are so many people who are worse than me. I think my good is going to outweigh my bad, and, and I'll be fine. That's the sin of pride, and it keeps you from Christ because you think that you don't need him. And the reality is, that's the sort of thing that the rich man who lifted up his eyes in hell thought. He thought he was fine, that he was basically a good person, even though his life made it obvious to everyone else that he wasn't. The sin of pride keeps you self-deceived so that you never depend on Christ. You never believe in the word of God and trust that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead because you don't think that you need it. Think about sexual sin for a moment. There, there are different types of sexual sin, but one thing that they all have in common is that they leave you feeling with such a deep sense of shame and guilt that you believe that God would never love you. That you're somehow dirtier than everyone else. That there's sinners and then there's you. And so you live with this remorse and this shame and this guilt. And you know what that does? It basically says the blood of Jesus is not powerful enough to cleanse me. Well, that's not true. The blood of Jesus can cleanse you from all sin. That the reality is it, it doesn't matter what you've done. There are no qualifications on God's forgiveness. So greed might keep some people away, pride might keep some people away. Sexual sin might keep some people away. If you are part of any of those sins, let me mention greed for just a second, Like, if you're the kind of person that you love collecting stuff, Jesus describes a couple of people who are like that. If you're the kind of person that you enjoy making money, you can be good at it or bad at it, and still struggle with the sin of greed either way. You're greedy because you don't have it, or you do have it, and it's just never enough, and it consumes you, and so you're too busy. You never think about needing to worship God, you never think about what God has commanded. You never think about being generous. You you never love other people with what God has given you. If you're greedy, you choke God out of your life by loving other things in his place. And your life in any one of those sins will set an example for other people around you. If you are a believer and you persist in that kind of sin, you are leading people astray by saying, I follow Christ and then disobeying the commands of Christ and you cause people to stumble. They'll say, well, there's no validity in Christianity because look at that person over there. If you worship another person or if you worship another God, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, it doesn't matter what it is, Your example may cause other people to follow you and commit the same sins. And so the same sin that's keeping you from God will keep them from God as well. There are many different ways that your sin can be a stumbling block for other people, which is why Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. You might think that your sin is private and no big deal, but Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. It will affect the people around you. So Jesus says two things after this command. Pay attention to yourself. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And part of the thing that, that he's teaching you is we do this in community. I don't know if you noticed, when he says pay attention to yourselves, that's in the plural. Plural. You're not supposed to like go off by yourself in a closet and examine your heart before God. You should do that. There's value in that. But the reality is, each of us has blind spots that we will never see. And when Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves, he's speaking to a group of people, and he intends for them to lovingly confront one another. That's why the very next command is, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Because he might be completely blind to his sin, and he might never realize that he needs to repent unless you tell him. So the command, pay attention to yourselves, is given two parameters. If you see someone else in sin, you go and you lovingly confront them because they are in danger of walking away from God. Their soul is in danger. If you don't confront them, You are a stumbling block, and you are allowing them to be in eternal danger. So when Jesus describes the type of person who allows a temptation to come, part of that is just passively failing to rebuke someone that you know is in sin, that you know will be damaged by their sin, and you say nothing and you do nothing. And there are lots of different reasons for saying nothing and doing nothing, but all of them are bad. Jesus says, rebuke your brother, rebuke your sister. We are not a culture that's comfortable with that. We are a culture that's comfortable with maybe, in extreme cases, humbly making very qualified, very cautious suggestions. You might say, I think maybe this is wrong and you shouldn't do that. We never come with boldness and say, you are in sin and your sin will send you to hell unless you repent. Now there is a way to speak in a kind of judgmental, condescending way that's holier than thou. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just being obedient to what Jesus has said. If you fail to rebuke someone... You are part of the reason that they will ultimately be condemned and you are a stumbling block. And Jesus says to you, it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. You have a responsibility to talk to people about their sin when you see it. Not only that, you have a responsibility to forgive. And if rebuking someone is hard, I think forgiving is even harder. It's even more difficult. Because if someone has sinned, especially against you, and maybe especially if someone has sinned against someone you love, being able to forgive also seems impossible. But you know what that does? Especially if you call yourself a Christian and you don't forgive, what you're teaching other people is that God doesn't forgive some sins. You're teaching other people that God holds grudges. And so you're a stumbling block in your sin, Because you are lying about God, not with your lips, but with your actions and with your attitude. And so if you hold on to this grudge and you fail to forgive, what you are doing is you're saying that my heavenly father also holds these kinds of grudges. Because you claim to follow Jesus, right? If you call yourself a Christian and you follow Jesus, you're supposed to behave like your father. Well, if you're acting in an attitude of unforgiveness, you are saying, this is okay by my father. And it's not. And you're causing people to stumble because you might teach them that their sin is beyond forgiveness. And maybe they would agree with you. And maybe they will not repent. And as a result of your unforgiveness, someone may fail to seek the grace of God. And so Jesus says to you, clearly, you must forgive. And he doesn't give you like a 30-day window. He says... If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He allows for repeat offenses. And there are many repeat offenders. I'm one of them. If someone comes to you and repents, you must forgive. Now, I do want to say something very clearly, very loudly. And I would ask that you pay special attention to this. Jesus is not enabling abusers here. When I say that he requires you to forgive, that does not mean you remain in an environment where abuse is possible, period. If you are in danger of abuse, you need to get out of that situation, and if you need help with that, we will help you. You can talk to me today. I can put you in touch with people that will get you to a safe place. I want to say that loudly and clearly. Your responsibility to forgive is real, but that does not mean that God wants you to stay in a position where you can continue to be abused, period. Not only do you need help, but also your abuser needs help, and they need to face the consequences for what they have done. And so I want to be very clear that this is actually where rebuking becomes part of an issue. They need to be confronted, and I also want to say this is why this is in the plural, because if you have been abused, you should not be the one doing the confrontation. You need help with that. Someone may go in your place when you're not even there. You need to be safe and protected from that situation and removed from that environment. So I want to, as a pastor, I want to teach very clearly, very loudly. You are required to forgive. You are required to rebuke. But as a community of people following Jesus, we love the vulnerable and want to protect them. And I do not want to put a sheep in a wolf's path from a misguided sense of how to obey this command. Many of you here, by the grace of God, have not experienced abuse, though. And I want to say to you now, very loudly and very clearly, that this passage applies to you, not only in great ways, but also in small ways. You are responsible to confront and to forgive. You are responsible to rebuke and to extend grace. And all of us together are responsible to pay attention to ourselves in obedience to the command of Christ. Now, I'm going to be real honest. This is impossible. Jesus is calling us to do something that we cannot do. And if you feel that way, you are not alone. Look at the next thing that happens in our text this morning. See how the apostles responded to this teaching from Christ. Look at verse 5 with me. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, we can't do this. We cannot do this. And Jesus responds and says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. There are a couple of ways that you can take that. For years, as I read that verse, I always thought that is so discouraging. There, There are times when Jesus rebukes people for not having faith. He's, oh, you have little faith. I don't think this is one of them. I think his point is not, you don't have the faith to do this. Jesus is not giving you a command that you will never be able to obey. He's giving you a command that causes you, just like the apostles, to call on God for faith so that you can obey. And so the way I understand this is Jesus is saying, it doesn't take a lot of faith. And if you ask for help, you will receive faith, you will receive what you need, and you will be amazed at what God does as you call on him in faith. How do I know that? Because in Luke 17, we are about to see some people who call on God in faith, and God does the incredible, miraculous, seemingly impossible thing. And so I believe Jesus intends this to be, be encouraged. If you feel like you can't forgive, if you feel like you could never confront, Call on God just like the apostles did. It doesn't take much and God loves to give you abundant faith beyond what you could ever imagine or need and you will find the strength to obey as you call on him and ask for help. And I believe that Jesus responds to this request with this exact promise that you will find the strength that you need when you call on him with faith. And then he tells a story that also increases their faith. So the first thing he does is he says, it doesn't take much, you can do it. The second thing he says is in verse 7. Read with me. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now what is going on? At first glance, this seems like it doesn't even fit the context. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, the first thing that he's done in response to the, the apostles saying, increase our faith, is he said, it doesn't take much. You can do the miraculous as you call on God in faith. You can obey these commands as you call on God in faith. But the second thing he does is he gives them a perspective of who God is and who they are. He reminds them that God is the Father, and he's just talked about this in, in chapter 15. God is the Father who loves them, and they owe him everything and it it almost seems like this is running counter to that it seems like Jesus is saying God is your master and you must serve him faithfully and don't expect anything that's not what he's saying he's saying our attitude needs to remain humble we need to remember we are just like the younger son who goes back to his father and he says I no longer deserve to be called your son and that's true And yet the Father loves him anyway and welcomes him back in as a son. None of us deserve the grace of God, or it wouldn't be grace. Jesus is saying, you need to remember who God is. He he is the master. You owe him everything. You owe him your service. Don't begin to have an attitude where you feel like God owes you something. And if you remember who God is and you know that you've received his grace and his mercy, and you know that he doesn't owe you anything, when someone sins against you, your first reaction ought to be, God has forgiven me of so much, so of course I forgive you too. And when they sin against you again, even up to seven times a day... You can think of how many times a day you have failed and disobeyed God, and your Father always extends mercy to you again and again and again. And if you have a humble heart that remembers how the Master has treated you, you will have a forgiving heart, and you'll be able to obey this command. So I believe Jesus is hes reminding you of who you are. He's reminding you of who God is. And then, like all amazing teachers, he illustrates this with a story. Or really, actually, more accurately, he lives it. Because what you see is you see people exercising a small amount of faith, the miraculous happening, and then you see one person who is ultimately and finally saved by his faith, giving praise and glory to God. In other words, he illustrates what's possible as you walk in faith so that you and I know that we can obey the command to confront and to forgive, and to pay attention to ourselves, and to make sure that we are following after Jesus. So look with me at the very last section today. Look at verse 11. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, this is part of a long section describing Jesus on his way to the cross, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Here's what's happening. Jesus has just told his disciples something that seems impossible. They've said increase our faith. He's given them some truth that will increase their faith. And then, like all good teachers, he shows them what happens when you live by faith. He's putting it in practice. Some of, you, some of you in school, you remember, if you read the textbook, it made no sense. And then if a good teacher showed you examples and put it in practice in front of you, then all of a sudden you understood and you could do it too. That's what Jesus is doing. He's telling you, you need faith, and then right in front of his disciples there are ten guys that call out on faith and are healed. And there's one guy that really gets it, that comes back in awe and in humility. You see, what this, this does, is you've got nine guys that are behaving like God owes them something. You've got nine guys who they expect the master to wait on them. They've got a problem that only God can fix. God fixes it. And they never come back, and you don't know what happens to them. And you've got one guy that understands who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and he falls flat on his face. And he shows the kind of faith that transforms you from the inside out. This is a guy who's not going to have any problem extending mercy and forgiveness to other people because he understands in a deep, heartfelt way what has happened for him. This cure, this is like stage 4 cancer. This, This is Ebola. This is the AIDS virus. This is an uncurable disease that made you a social outcast and killed you in humiliation and shame as your body literally fell apart. And Jesus just did the impossible because they called on him in faith. He cured them. He made them clean. But only one of them is told, your faith has made you well. Or or more literally from the Greek, your faith has saved you. And I believe what Jesus is showing is he's giving you a picture of what saving faith is truly like. He showed his faith in two ways. First, he asked for mercy, along with the other nine. That's a kind of faith, calling out to God for help. But there are a lot of people who ask for God's mercy without being saved. Here's what shows that his heart was transformed. He came back and he worshipped. He gave glory to God. Because a heart that has been saved by faith is a heart that worships God. One of my greatest fears as just a Christian and also as a pastor, as I I am entrusted with the care of other people at our church, is there are a lot of people that want to have God fix their problems. And, And my prayers are sometimes motivated more by my immediate problems than by many of the things that I should pray for faithfully. They come to God in faith to fix a problem, but they don't actually... Have a heart that's transformed by the love and the mercy of God. There's no desire to genuinely worship. And worship is a word that we can use in a bunch of different ways. Here's what I mean they don't have a desire to sing loudly with feeling. And, and, and I don't care about your voice. Some people are kind of embarrassed about their voice. It doesn't say if this guy was loudly worshiping on key, you know? I've listened to recordings. Sometimes I, I help with the music, I, and I am not always on pitch. So it's not about sounding good. It's about having a heart that just can't hold it in. And you're so thankful for what God has done for you that you love to sing loud. And you don't care who hears or how bad it sounds. You're genuinely worshiping from the heart. That pleases God. But if you come in and you're like, man, I hate this singing thing. It's so weird. It's showing you that you don't have anything to sing about. You've never experienced God's grace. Singing is a sign of a heart that wants to worship God because God is so good. And if you don't have that as part of your heart, as part of your life, I would be worried about you. Some people don't worship through giving, and I'm not going to turn this into a message on giving, but giving is like singing. It's the same sort of, God has done so much for me. And so if this, is, this is how I want to spread the good news of Jesus. I, I want to give back to our missionaries. I want to support the missions of our church, like Awana, that, that helps kids with the scriptures, that will give them help when they need it, because they know the truth of the, the word of God. They know the promises of God. So you might give financially, but, but a lot of people feel kind of stingy with their money, and they don't want to worship God with their giving. And that's a sign that you've never experienced the mercy and grace of God. You're the kind of person that you come to God and say, God, fix my problem. If you could just heal me, please, that'd be great. And you walk away and you never come back. But genuine faith is not like that. Genuine faith is like this man that is so overwhelmed that he can't even finish the command of Jesus. He has to come back and give immediate glory to God and immediate praise and immediate worship. And, And not only that, worship is listening to the word of God. You know, it's it's not just about coming to God when you have a problem. It's about trying to know God through his word. And some people are like, man, I come to church because this is my family. I love my family. I love the events that we do. It's super fun. The worst thing about church is the preaching, which on some weeks is probably true. The reality is, though, It doesn't matter how good the message is. If you're faithful to the word of God, what matters is you are hearing the words of God and your heart ought to be hungry for that. You ought to long to know God better through his word. You should have a hunger for theology. Not even just reading the word of God, but wanting to know truths that are difficult to understand, that you can wrestle with, with other people, that you can try to understand it, because you know that the more you know, the more you will love God, and the more your heart will want to sing, and the more you'll be generous with the money that God's given you, because if you know him, you will love him. But many people are not like that. Many people come and they ask God for mercy, but there is no heart change. They expect that God will wait on them hand and foot. They're like the older brother and the prodigal son. They want God's stuff. They feel like they deserve it. And they have no experience of the love of God, and they certainly don't love God in return. This leper did not expect the master to serve him, but the master did, and he knows that he didn't deserve it. So he is overwhelmed by the mercy he's received, and it's obvious. Most people come to God to have their problems solved at some point. And when they do that, you know, they might make promises like, Dear God, if you get me out of this, I will do X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. Whether it's give a gift, whether it's volunteer some time, whether it's apologize to my mother, whatever it is, you kind of bargain with God. If that's you, you're not experiencing the grace of God, you're trying to buy it. And even if you get what you want, but especially if you don't, most people will then walk away from God and never return. Why? Because they never realized who they were and who God is. They never realized in humble faith that they didn't deserve anything from God, that everything God gives us is by grace, and they didn't recognize their true need. This leper recognizes that he is an unworthy servant, and he just wants to thank the master. Is that what you're like? we we don't know what actually happened to the other nine maybe eventually they realized who jesus was and what he did and maybe they came back with hearts to worship we don't know but i think one of the reasons jesus doesn't tell us is because he wants us to think what's going to happen to me what's happening in my life am i like this one guy am i really how do you worship? It should be able to tell you something about the state of your soul. And Jesus is commanding you to pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself right now. How do you, how do you rate when you think about the quality of your worship and your heart and your desire to praise God? Do you recognize your own spiritual danger? Are you paying attention to yourself? Are, are there things in your life that lead other people away from God, if worship is not a priority, people will follow you in worshiping whatever it is that you do love in the place of God. You might be a great evangelist for camping on the weekends. You might. And that can hinder other people who ought to be worshiping. I'm not saying you'd never go camping. I'm saying if you're an evangelist for recreation and retreat, you'll be very effective there. But it's the wrong thing to be an evangelist for. Do you recognize that there are things in your life that might cause others to stumble? That this verse applies to you? That if you are the kind of person that that you are like the nine, you are going off doing whatever it is that you feel like, you're not dedicated in worship, there's no heart worship. If you're like the other nine, then you are in danger of leading other people to condemnation. And Jesus says, it would be better if you had a rock tied around your neck and you were thrown in a lake. If that's you... I want to do what Jesus commands us to do, and as lovingly as I can, right now, I want to rebuke you. You are in sin. If you do not have a heart that loves to worship God, if you have no desire to know his word, if you have no desire to sing his praise, if you have no desire to worship him in service in your giving, you are in sin, and you are in danger, and you need to repent, and I want to invite you to do it now recognize the grace of God is extended to you through the cross of Jesus Christ, that his blood will cover your sins and you need his forgiveness. Call on him. Jesus says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive his sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse you today. But if you walk away and say, I don't really need that. That's just kind of crazy. And that's probably not what the Bible means anyway. You are lost and in danger. And I'm telling you right now, the danger is for you and the danger is real. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never come to know Christ. If that's you, I would urge you to repent. And I would like you to talk to me today about baptism. Baptism is how you publicly say, I am a believer. I deserve to die for my sins, but Jesus did it for me. And because he did it for me, I've been raised to walk in newness of life. If you need to be baptized, don't leave today until you've talked to me about it. I would love to tell you how you can be saved, and we will baptize you next week. Not only that, Christian, if you have already come to Christ and you would say, I'm a follower, but but you know what? I, I just feel dry. I don't know if I'm following God or not. Let me urge you. Call on him now and repent of your sins. Ask him to reveal the things that are in your life that are leading you and others astray. Ask God to give you fresh joy and to open your eyes to all that he's done for you so that you can worship him in sincerity and in truth. I'd like for us to do that now. Let's pray together and and I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, first we want to acknowledge your greatness and your mercy and your love. That Lord, while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our sins, you loved us and sent Christ to die for us. You, You are the master who is so good. You have served us, and we did nothing to merit it. And Father, we want to confess and admit that there are things in our lives that are wrong. And as we worship other things, that that we do lead others astray. And in the quiet of this moment, I would encourage you to be specific and to confess something. If God has laid it on your heart, and you need to get it out of your life, Tell him what it is and give it up now. Father, I ask that you would reveal those things to us and forgive us for our sins. But Lord, not only forgive us, but give us the joy that comes from being right with you. We can't forgive other people. We can't rebuke other people unless we are right with you and we know your love Lord, we can't love other people unless we experience your love. So give us that, that assurance, that joy. And teach us to walk in obedience. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to dismiss you with a verse from 2 Corinthians. And, and it's easy, because I do like a little verse dismissal every week, to, to just let it become kind of ritual and kind of routine. But, but this is really intended to be a prayer. We need grace if we are going to obey the commands of Jesus. We need love if we are going to experience God's grace and give it to other people. And we need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit if we're going to do this together as a church. So as I dismiss you with this verse, recognize what this is. This is a prayer that God would do exactly what we've talked about from his word in us, in our church. So now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.